All right, rock and roll, rock and roll. Let's do it. Chuck Berry, baby. Welcome, fam. This is Courtney Russell Jr., and I'm here with my co-host, Emily Brocker. Welcome to Humanize. We are two Americans with totally different backgrounds and life experiences. We're coming together on this podcast to dive right at the heart of the three things that shut down tough conversations about race, culture, power, and ego. The stories you are about to hear are meant to humanize those deeply involved in social justice. Welcome to the work, y'all. Let's get it. What's going on, family? Again, we're about to bless your eardrums with another exciting episode of Humanize. I'm just excited, as you can see, well, not see, but as you can feel, you know, we're here um, just really pushing thought, pushing consciousness, and really about doing this work. And hopefully we will be the catalyst. I do want to say this disclaimer, which we haven't said in a while, about the relationships that we have fostered in order to push this thought to be in these conversations. So understand that the relationship, the permission, the um, acknowledgement that is going to be maybe uncomfortable, and we're all in it. And so we've done that work. So um, just with that understanding, let's get to work right now with our next guest. Emily, what's going on? <laughs> Thank you, Courtney. So Today, I am super excited. I, you, the lead up to even starting recording has been so much fun already. We have Dr. Raylan Rebecca, who is a professor of African and African American Caribbean Studies in the Department of Ethics Studies at CU Boulder. And he is so welcome, Dr. Rebecca. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I was so excited. I encountered Dr. Rebecca when I was in a NAACP meeting. At that point, it was in the fall, and it was still the lead up to a great accomplishment of opening the Center for African and African American Studies at the University of Colorado, Boulder. So huge congratulations on that. Thank you so much. You're very kind. <laughs> I can't imagine the work that went into it. So we asked him to, to come on um and just kind of allow this center to come to life. Cause I'm really curious. I'm here based in Boulder and I haven't, you know, I haven't heard a lot about it. I don't understand the, you know, I would love to learn more about the significance, what your vision is, what you hope it becomes through the lens of, of your path as a human in this world. And like, how did you end up in Boulder opening this and would love to just know more of your background? I really appreciate the question. Uh, I came here in 2005. Prior to that, I was teaching in Los Angeles, California for about five years. And I experienced a great deal of culture shock when I came out here on uh, July 27, 2005. I still remember it. And came out here for the opportunity to build something, you know, build community. Obviously, uh, build Black community, but also build what Martin Luther King Jr. called the beloved community, which is a conception that maybe I'm remixing. I can't help be a hip hopper. I'm remixing uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s conception of the beloved community with a strong emphasis on radical inclusivity. By radical inclusivity, I know I sound like a professor, but don't let it to change its spots. Uh, with radical inclusivity, I'm talking about making sure that when we talk about building community, we talk about building a center, we talk about a university like the city of Colorado at Boulder, that we are including girls and women. I have to say that first and foremost. Why? Because I'm raised by my grandmamas and my mama. Uh, so I'm always, always going to shout out uh, sisters first, 
And then also, are we including queer and trans folk? Are we including people with different abilities? Are we including people that are immigrants, people that don't speak English? It's not the language, right? So on and so forth. So I want to radical inclusivity. It's actually beyond race. Right. And so, again, if we're going to really talk about what it means to be African-American, many of us, even saying African-American is always already multiracial and multicultural. Right. I mean, I know. I mean, we was held in bondage 250 years of enslavement. We know there was a lot of different stuff going on uh, with respect to not simply racial violence, but also sexual violence. Again, so you have this almost this incredible creolization of a people. So the whole notion of any kind of I mean, I come from a hybrid heritage. So it's a mixture of many different things. And instead of feeling a sense of, quote unquote, stigma or shame around it. For me, it's a badge of honor that we are already there. You know what I'm saying? We're already multiracial, multicultural, multilingual, multi-religious. I could do this all day, but I know we don't have all day. But so for me, part of part of this journey of building this center is I'm taking a nod out of not only my intellectual idol, W.E.B. Du Bois book. I want to take a page from his book when he built the NAACP. He built it with an interracial group of anti-racist. I'm going to say that slow. An interracial group of anti-racist founded this organization on February the 12th, 1909. And again, probably in a situation much like I'm in here, Boulder, Colorado, where you have uh, some uh, liberal uh, and progressive-minded whites who simply don't even know where to start, where to begin. So the cause will consistently serve as a space to introduce African and African-American culture. It's like a, a warehouse, a showcase. And it actually based, first and foremost, obviously for Africans and African-Americans. When I say African-American, I also want to point out that I mean in a hemispheric sense. I mean all the Africans throughout the Americas, North, Central, and South. So when some of us are saying African-American, we're meaning like African people in the Western hemisphere. This is, this is it, right? This is the big thing. In the West, and so it's it's the hemispheric conception of African American. You you know right now that I have a lot of uh, Afro Brazilian, uh, Black Brazilian students, and right now in one country in South America, Brazil, there's 134 million African people in Brazil alone. That's just one country. Now, last time I checked, what is 39, 40 million African American? So that means it's like three times the amount of Black folk just in one country in Brazil. So I wanted. I'm really into this whole notion of radical inclusivity. I want to push the envelope to make sure that we're including a wider range of people when we start thinking about blackness, when we start thinking and talking about Africanity. And so again, I'm kind of pushing the envelope. So one, a nod to W.B. Du Bois. Two, Howard Thurman, my spiritual idol, Howard Thurman, who founded the very first interfaith and interracial church in the United States of America. So the spiritual component of this center as well, like this is a space where the, the wide breadth of African religiosity, spirituality will also be at play. Not everybody's Christian, not everybody's Muslim, not everybody's, you know, Boulder, we got a lot of Buddhists running around here, right? So it's a space where, again, we want to make sure to include a wide range of expressions of what it means to be African, what it means to be Black, Right. And so on and so forth.
What you said really brought a smile to my face when you said a badge of honor, a badge of honor to be black. The marketing, you know, and I'm all as entrepreneur, it's all about branding. It's all about marketing. It's all about pushing an, an agenda. Whether you want to admit it or not, everyone, the moment you walk outside your door, you're pushing some kind of agenda for the world to see who you are. And a lot of times the branding is we, we can't be that happy to be who we are because we're not as good. We lack certain attributes. And I, like I said in the, in the intro, I'm on a lifelong mission to make sure the individuals that look like me understand that you can look like me and become a doctor, a lawyer, an entrepreneur. You can be a millionaire. Our communities are filled with so many other individuals instead of basketball players, right? And rappers. And rappers. And rappers. <laughs> and rappers. I love both of those. I mean, you know I, I love I, them, I, I, play, I, 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 I play ball. I, I, listen, I, I listen to hip-hop. If I'm not reading a book, I'm, I'm into the hip-hop, old school. You know what I mean? So I, I, I love it. But there are so many other things that our community is rich in, and we're brilliant, but it's not marketed like it should be. It's not really marketed good to go to college and come home. However, you go to jail and come home, it's like, yo, you made it. What we're good at, and doctor, you would appreciate this, and I know Emily will too, people of color are good at repackaging pain. So we get a whole bunch of bullshit, like, oh man, I can't, you know what? I'm about to make it cool. I'm going to make it cool to come from these projects. I'm going to make it cool to be in this much pain. But that's a way of survival. That's a condition tendency that we have to do to even be still here standing. I'm going to smile, but I know back at the crib, I can't even eat. But I'm walking through the hood, listening to my, yo, your bro, you don't know me. You don't know. But then you close the door and you're like, bro, man, my stomach is touching my spine right now. I'm starving. Because we can't show the world, especially white folk, that they want. So we got to make sure that they see us. When they see us, they want to be us. That's why there's a lot of individuals that sell drugs that are doing it because they think it's a cool thing to do. Come on, man. Come on, man. Like, that's not. So I'm on a mission, and I wanted to see what you, how you felt about because you said another thing you said that was amazing too was radical inclusivity. Now, when I speak like this, individuals always see, man, there he go talking that black shit. Nah, no, I love individuals for who they are. The reality is, individuals that see me may not love me for who I am. That's the reality. Because we're often overdetermined by our blackness. 100%. You know what I mean? So, what if the reality of the matter is, I'm rocking with Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass. Why do I say that? Because for them, they were in a situation where they tried to dehumanize our ancestors. 250 years of bondage. And what they did, the reason we know their names, they were not successful at dehumanizing us. They asserted their humanity. So look at the name of y'all podcast. This is why I'm on here. I wouldn't even be on here. <laughs> why? Again, I'm really into that. What I'm saying is like for 250 years, they tried to dehumanize us. And so... Uh, Dr. Russell, so much respect to you because you're absolutely correct. We have been like, what if the reality of the matter is we need to talk about black mental health and wellness. The fact that 250 years, you are in a very depressing situation and environment. Have we had some collective therapy for our collective trauma? I just dropped the mic now. It's your turn. Y'all talk to me. 
Man, come on, bro. Come on now. Well, so this is the cipher. This is a this is a go ahead. Okay, so we we're in the cipher right now. Okay. Um, you just talked about mental health. And you also talked about Harriet Tubman. I'm gonna even bring Nat Turner into it. All day. Right? So the reason they couldn't just shoot Nat Turner and let him throw him in a hole somewhere, they had to show you because they're trying to not only kill him, but kill hope. Break your spirit. See, it was spirit breakers back then. Spirit break. They didn't just beat your body. Ooh, they would try to uh, practice spirit mutilation. They want to destroy your radical spirit, that, that part of you. See, this is what I learned from Toni Morrison. If you read the work of Toni Morrison, Toni Morrison talks about, particularly with uh, black women, it's a part of us that can't be touched. See, it's that intangible part. That, that right there, that's how I'm able to connect with my students in Boulder, Colorado. How I can teach a hip-hop class with 150 students, and there might only be 15, 20, 25 black students in the class, and I'm going to kill the game every time. Why? Because they never got an opportunity to have African-American studies until they get to an institution where they have to pay $25,000, $30,000. I don't even know. The, I try not to think about that, how much they pay a year. But they have to pay all of this money to finally get access to African-American studies. Let me also put you on game. You're also looking at a professor of women, gender, and sexuality studies. So only when you go to college do you have access to studying, oftentimes, doing women and gender and sexuality studies. You got to pay all of this. So are we saying then that only folks from the suburbs should get exposed to this. Oh, y'all better. Oh. Hold I'm on a, now. Hold on. You, you, you throw the, oh, Emmy, I'm sorry. Emmy. We do the cipher <laughs> back and forth. I, I got I to gotta bring my girl in. I got to bring my girl Emily. Go ahead and talk. Cause I got something to say. <laughs> um, what you just said made me curious about, you know, like access to understanding. So this feels really linked in with critical race theory and the, the current conversation about like how early in school should this be coming in? Do you think, I'd just love to get your perspective on what's going on. And if you have to wait until college, you know, I learned about critical theory in graduate school and that was hard enough to grasp then. I'd love to, to know like when, when this needs to be coming in and if it's even going to be coming in at early ages and if that would make a difference in, um, access to understanding and, and the impulse to be inclusive because we realize that we're talking about people. Emily, listen, let me say that I appreciate the question. I appreciate the uh, radical honesty of the question. And these are precisely and exactly the kinds of conversations that we will be having in uh, the Center for African and African-American Studies. Courtney, um, the street name, the street name for my center it's called The Cause. So C-triple-A-S, The Cause is what the hip-hop students call it. The Cause. Yo, you know, so I'm saying Du Bois had the crisis. I have the cause, right? And the cause, this is a just cause, right? This is a cause that everybody has a special contribution to make to the cause, including my, including my students from the suburbs, and including all, all of my white family in the NAACP. They have a special contribution to make to the cause. This is not about biology. See, race is not a, it's not really a biological concept. It's a social construction. Let's start right there. N number two, let's define what it is that we're talking about when we say critical race theory. A lot of times people who are not specialists in it, they're going around with these little sort of academic or intellectual witch hunts and they never define it. When we, when I talk about critical race theory, what we are talking about is 
how race and racism are embedded in almost all major American institutions, government, religion, education, medicine. I could do this all day. Right. And so, again, you can't name name one major American mainstream, major American institution that race and racism are not woven into the fabric of it. Right now, I work at an institution, University of Colorado at Boulder. It has uh, thirty six thousand students, more than thirty six thousand students. There's only nine hundred black students. Let me do the math for you. That's two point five percent. 2.5% of a major American university. Obviously, somebody's checking for race. Even if they ran up on me and said, well, uh, the university population should reflect the Denver Boulder metro area. Well, we're about 10 to 12%. Right? Black folk are about 10 to 12% of the Denver metropolitan area. So how come the student population doesn't reflect? Y'all can't hear me, though. Right? Mm-mm. Now, now... Now, and most of the sports teams are black people. Bro. So hey. talk about the talk about racial myths and stereotypes. So if I got a wicked jump shot or I can come with these 12 bars when I'm rapping, I can get a scholarship. But don't try to do anything else. It's a very tricky situation. The cause is also here to rectify that. Why? Because one of the main missions of the Center for African and African American Studies is to grapple with recruitment and retention. Again, they can get some of us out here. See, Emily, the question you ought to ask is, well, how is it that I've been out here 17 years? Now, you might make fun of me and say, wow, it took you all that long to start that center? Well, <laughs> no. a, imagine, imagine trying to do it when, again, a lot of times the stu- this is like a revolving door institution for black folk where they come in and come out. Not, not just the students, the faculty too. I'm right now in the position that Manning Marable, Pulitzer Prize winning, African-American historian, wrote a Pulitzer Prize winning book on Malcolm X. Manning Marable used to have this position, only stayed here four years, right? After, after Manning Marable, there was Joy James, right? And so again, it's a revolving door where they don't stay. I told them the only way I'm going to stay, I'm going to build a center. So we're going to institutionalize a black community building space where people can come, not not just black folk, but our allies included. You don't hear me talking to you, Emily, but our allies included are also welcome. Now, the second you come through the door of the Center for African and African-American Studies, uh, you got to act like an African. So they got to come in there. You got to show respect. People actually speak to me. How you doing, Dr. Rebecca? And people going to get Dr. Russell. They're going to give me my title. Why? Because they know that there's there's only about 30 black faculty on, on the whole faculty. Right. Out of fifteen hundred tenure track, there's only about 30 of us. So they don't even get a chance to interact. I've got white students from Utah and Wyoming and New Mexico who say, you know, Dr. Rebecca, you're the first uh, African-American professor or teacher I've ever had in my life. And I said, well, oh, I hope I'm repping us right. I hope I'm repping us <laughs> right. But to, but to get back to your question about uh, CRT, listen, they have all kinds of psychological studies that show that children start recognizing race around kindergarten, if not before. So if children are able to recognize race around between three and five, and there's a lot of social scientific data that shows this, here's the other part of it. Do you know my mother said that the more difficult conversation to have with me was not the birds and the bees. It was about race and racism. It was about when I was nine years old and I invited, (laughs) 
uh, a young white brother, blonde hair, blue eyed, to my birthday party. And I get to his house to pick him up. We're going to take him. We're going to go to Pizza Hut or somewhere. We're going to go get pizza. I get to the door. He's crying. Said, oh, yeah, my, my parents said I can't go with you to your birthday party. I said, why? He said, because you're an N-word. I'm nine years old. He said, because you're an N-word. So, again, so waiting, I think the whole waiting thing, that's part of, that's a white privilege that most non-white, right, people don't, we don't, non-white children don't have the luxury. We're well aware of race, how we get treated differently on so many different levels. And so what would happen if we did expose the group who thinks of themselves as race-less, <laughs> white folk, they don't think that they have, race is something that only, like right now, people run around saying people of color. Is that just a 21st century remix of colored people? And wait, last time I checked, now, Emily, I, I, I don't know if you have any cheering. Do you have any cheering? Yeah, two kids. Okay, so now, did you ever buy them a box of Crayolas or crayons? Mm-hmm. Now, last time I checked, now, again, I got nieces and nephews, nine of them. In a box of crayons, they have a white color. They have a white Crayola. That's very confusing for children. That terminology is very confusing for children, too. Like, white is a color. I know white is the absence of color, technically, but white... So even the terminology, even how we're talking about race, it's very... It's confusing us. And all we're saying is critical race theories. That means the nomenclature, the actual terms in which I'm using to discourse, to conversate, to talk about race. I want to be more precise. What we have is set up in a world where you really have whites and non-whites. And so that term is something that's more in vogue in terms of contemporary critical race theory discourse. People are actually talking about, wow, where are the conversations surrounding white privilege? What about critical white studies? You're looking at a specialist (laughs) in critical white studies. My idol, W.E.B. Du Bois, he wrote a piece called The Souls of White Folk in 1910, three years after he published a book called The Souls of Black Folk in 1903. Most people, they've never read The Souls of White Folk. So he's actually grappling with, he's actually saying it's important for us to name it, to name whiteness and stop acting like it's only non-white folks who actually are raced or hyper-raced. And then, Emily, can I ask you a rhetorical question? Yeah. Uh, what's the opposite of white? What's the opposite? Uh, <laughs> what color? What color is supposedly? What color? It's a quick question, baby. Black. Now, Dr. Russell, Courtney, yeah. did you hear that? I heard so it. now, I... wait now. So if Malcolm says, wow, you associate white with everything that's good and you associate black with everything that's bad, blah, 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 blah. So again, we need to sort of, we have to interrogate why is it that when people come to African people in the United States of America, there's a tendency to overdetermine us based on color. And if you notice, I didn't call my new center the Center for Black Studies. No, I said African. I want to make sure that we're exploring our Africanity. Now, am I a member of BLM? Am I very proud of the Black Lives Matter movement? And do I explore blackness and all that? Oh, absolutely. Courtney, when I go to the barber shop, first thing I do when I hit the door, they're going to say, what's up, black? <laughs> you already know. You know what I mean? You know how it is. But at the same time, they know, but yo, 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 this brother right here, he can not only rock the color, he can put you on game to the history, the culture, and the struggle. Hundred percent, bro. Wow, hold on, hold on now. <laughs> All right, you was rapping a minute ago. I got to come up with my verse right now. Okay, so so when it comes to critical race theory, even in the the term critical race theory, why would you not want to look critically at something as important 
as race. If you are married, that's a critical relationship that you have to look at. If you're in business, you have to critically look at everything that brings you money. So something that is important that has taken so many lives as race should be looked upon critically. So when individuals say that, why would you not want, we don't want our kids to be taught that because it's demonizing this and that, you're actually disrespecting your own children in my mind, because you're assuming that they're not intelligent enough to understand they're not evil. This is actually facts. If I see someone that's black commit a crime, does that indict the whole black community? Or is it just that this man made a poor choice? That's the reality. And at the same time, Courtney, I think it's also important for us to articulate uh, when I say I'm a specialist in critical white studies, and I've written extensively on Du Bois's piece, The Souls of White Folk, it's also important, at least in Boulder, and I think Emily saw me rock this with the NAACP, it's important for me also to remind many of our white brethren and sistren and gender nonconforming folk that I rocks with the abolitionists. I just I already called out Harry Tubman, Frederick Douglass, Sojourner Truth, Martin Delaney. I could do this all day long, but I also like John Brown. See, what if the reality of the matter is we've long had interracial, anti-racist movements. They just don't teach you about them. Critical race studies is one of the spaces where some of my white students, for the first time in their lives, they actually get taught and exposed to white anti-racist models in African-American studies where they don't maybe anywhere else on the Boulder campus. I'm actually talking to them. I'm talking to them about, check this out. Oh, boy. Uh, Emily, we just had the MLK Day. Now, in a lot of the images that I've showed in my lectures on Martin Luther King Jr., I showed Martin Luther King Jr. standing next to a Catholic priest, to a Jewish rabbi, to Thich Nhat Hanh, a Buddhist monk. And I show all of the white women and white men who are right there participating, contributing to the civil rights movement. There are models out there for white anti-racism. I don't need to invoke a, a Tim Wise or Robin D'Angelo, but the reality of the matter is, what if there has always been a minority, a small group of white folk who really are willing to stand against racism in this country? And oftentimes they're often marginalized within their own communities. And though, uh, rescue me if I'm wrong, Brother Courtney, we, we welcome them 100%. in African America. We welcome them. They with us. They in the cause. They are members of my community. I, I welcome them. I want them with me. They, they mine. If nobody else don't want them, <laughs> they mine. They are mine. They are my people. See, this is, what I, this is what I mean by moving beyond blackness. Yes, embrace blackness, but don't. you got to make sure that we're always evolving the culture. And the culture says that right now, if you saw my father, you'd be like, wow, Rebecca, your daddy, white? No, Creole. So what if the fact that many of us already come from hybrid heritages and we already, some of us already, we got white folk in our family. We've got uh, Mexican and Latinx folk in our families. Right. So we already we're already hip to that. We was already doing that since 1619. So that's not new to us per se. And so for me, part of it is, is that, yes, I want to provide first and foremost. Listen to me, Brother Courtney. Primarily African-American studies is about helping uh, African people and African-Americans rescue and reclaim our history, our culture and our sense of struggle. 
Secondarily, I'm an African-American ambassador. I came to share this culture with the world. That means that I believe in the, the, the grandeur, the beauty and the profundity of African-American culture, African culture, I think is worthy to be shared. And a lot of people, if, if I dial it down a little bit and say, you know what, I welcome you into this brand new space called the Center for African and African-American Studies. You found yourself in a peaceful place. Come on off in it. Karibu, as we say in Kiswahili. Karibu, come on in. You're welcome. Come on in here and learn the culture. But when you come here, you have to respect. There will be no disrespect of Africa and African people in this space. If there's only one place in Boulder, Colorado, right, where you can, black folks can go and they know. It's like I said, I'm like, I feel like Harriet Tubman. This is like one of the underground railroad stops in the Rocky Mountains. Y'all can't hear me. So it's very important to understand these models. I believe, what if I'm saying to you all that as part of the hip hop generation and the Black Lives Matter movement generation, I have a historical sense that I'm part of that first generation of United States citizens and especially African-Americans who came of age post-civil rights movement, post-Black power movement, post women's liberation movement, post Stonewall and the gay and lesbian liberation movement, post the American Indian movement, the Chicano movement, the Asian American movement. I could do this all day. So what if I, unlike my parents, I didn't go to segregated schools? What if I, I already, we was already mixed up. Now we was poor. And as you already uh, signified, brother, yes, brother, I came, I went from the projects to the professorate. Holler at me. And th th that's no shame. In my hip hop class, if you see how much that your little brother gets when the people realize like, well, word, he, he first generation and he come off of here and he's just killing the game. Whoa. Huh? Right. And so, again, a model, though. So when people say I'm telling you one of my suburban white students one time at the University of Colorado in Boulder said, wow, Dr. Baca, I looked at your bio page. I didn't realize you actually have a Ph.D. I thought we were calling you doctor like Dr. Dre. <laughs> Whoa. So that's what I'm saying. Mo most people don't understand why people don't, they don't understand the HBCU culture that it probably, it takes us a lot more work to get these degrees. I don't need to rep. It takes us much more. Why? The black tax, the black, the double duty, the triple duty that we have to go through in order to sometimes do the exact same things like buy a home, raise children, be married, stay in healthy relationships. All the, it's the, that's the black tax. That's that double duty. Uh, the new center, the Center for African and African American Studies, this is a space where we can have forthright and full throated conversations about some of the key issues impacting us. This is also where we can expose mm, the campus and the community to our history, our culture, and our ongoing struggle. Like on a really practical note, how do people, because like, we have a lot of listeners from the Boulder, Denver area, how do people get on the lists around um, events, invitations, like how to get engaged, particularly people who are not on campus? Thank you so much for the question. There's a page on our website for how people can get involved. And we will be starting, if I'm correct, our first newsletter will go out for Black History Month 2022. So next month. And um, so we're just now getting started. Now, Emily, I want to be very clear. If I can talk about the infrastructure for, of the cause for one second, our grand opening is supposed to be fall 2022. So I'm still in the infrastructure phase. So that may be why you're not hearing so much is because 
is because, again, it took me 17 years to do this. I just hired our associate director, Mr. John Robinson Miller IV. And John Robinson Miller IV is a specialist in African and African-American student services. So he's going to run our student services program, right, where we will be able to help the special kinds of needs that many of our students have on the Boulder campus. If you can imagine high levels, uh, much like myself, they experience uh, isolation, alienation, microaggressions, racial trauma. This is that safe space where they can go to, not just during February, but 365 days out of the year, here is a space that's been institutionalized. And again, I need to shout out Chancellor Phil DiStefano, Provost Russ Moore, Dean Scott Adler, Dean Jim White, uh, Associate Dean David Brown. I mean, can you imagine? They obviously believe in me and my work enough to bankroll <laughs> a brand new... Si- now, this university been here since 1876, and there's a lot of Black people done come through here. But somehow, some way, y'all can't hear me, a member of the Black Lives Matter movement finally gets this thing off the ground where when I'm gone, this is my love letter to the University of Colorado at Boulder. This is my love letter to Boulder County. You saw how I rocked the community, uh, Emily, how much I love. We have a love affair. They know that I welcome them, that we're going to have anti-racist trainings at the Center for African and African-American Studies. Uh, I feel like I have a special duty. uh, I have a special mission and mandate to reach out and build a beloved community here in Boulder, Colorado. This is like a spiritual mission for me. I think some of them can feel that. Now, again, I'm not going to hold their hands. Uh, uh, They got to do the work. But if you're willing to do the work, oh, yes, you can come and get put on to anti-racism, right? You know what, Emily? Uh, I want them to have white anti-racist book groups that meet in the cause once a month. Right. It might need to be once a week because there's a lot of unlearning <laughs> of some, you know, some stuff that, that needs to take place. But anyway, I'm just trying to be positive and be, you know, I need to motivate people because, you know, we live in a very depressing time. There's so much going on in our world right now. and So much divisiveness. I'm a force that idolized Ella Baker and Ella Baker. This is one of the great figures of the civil rights movement. But Ella Baker worked behind the scenes of the civil rights uh, movement. And Ella Baker was a bridge. And I see myself as a bridge builder. I'm building a bridge literally from the Boulder campus to the Boulder County community. And the response from the community and particularly from the Boulder County NAACP has been tremendous, uh, if I can be perfectly honest with you. And they have helped me to be able to make the case to the university as to why this center is needed, why it would be important. And Emily, uh, you yourself went to the meeting. Emily, can I just ask you in front of all your listeners? Now, was there more white folk at the meeting than there was black folk at the NAACP meeting? (laughs) So you can clearly see how white folk friendly (laughs) I am. And this center, I'm, I'm saying, though, that at some point I see when people when we really get into the realm of anti racism. Like what if if we're saying that race is truly a social construct, can I practice what we call in critical race theory, a phenomenology of race, a phenomenology of race means that I suspend preconceived conceptions of race and I actually try to get to know each one of my students as human beings. And when I do that, they have wait lists for all my classes. 
you see. Uh, they have, you know, the fire marshal has come through and shut my class. Because you got students sitting in the aisles and they brought their grandmamas and they, they, they partners and they, they brought their mama and their daddy and everybody come all off in there. Why? Because they know I know how to practice. Even if it's just for that 75 minutes of my lecture, twice a week, so that's three hours a week, I'm with them, or two, two and a half hours, we suspend all that stuff going on elsewhere and just say, let's build a beloved community. I, or excuse me, wait, I feel like Bob Marley. Let's get together and feel all feel right. Yeah. Come on, bro. One love. One love. Yes, sir. Uh, that, I believe in that. Uh, I believe in that. Do y'all believe in come that? Come on, man. Do y'all feel good? Come on, man. Do y'all feel good? Come on, now. I'm just saying, though. What strikes me, what you just said, <laughs> is like just how much of a conscious practice it needs to be of like, I am saying saying no to my conditioning right now, whatever that conditioning is, and I am choosing a heart connection over whatever that is, whatever that conditioning is that is is popping up preconceived notion based on race. Emily, can I I be vulnerable? Can I be vulnerable with you? And I want you to know, Sister Emily, that I'm not asking you to do something that I'm not doing. If I can be vulnerable, like my idol, Audrey Lord, or like James Arthur Baldwin, whom I adore, every day I have to wake up and challenge my sexist socialization. See, I have to wake up every day and challenge the fact that I've been socialized to be a perfect little patriarch. See, I have to, I have to wake up and grapple with that, and I have to consciously do it. Emily, same thing, heterosexism queerphobia, transphobia. I've got to wake up every day and challenge myself. I'm not, oh boy, I'm not asking folks to do something I'm not consciously and actively involved in every day of my life. I just don't have a lot of those issues surrounding race, to be perfectly honest with you. Emily, if the chair behind you or is white, and if they have white t-shirts, your skin really isn't white. (laughs) Uh, Brother, uh, Dr. Russell, Dr. Russell, uh, Dr. Russell, are you wearing a black shirt? (laughs) Of course, yes. Okay, so Dr. Russell, have you ever seen anybody's skin (laughs) as dark as your shirt? (laughs) Now, Dr. Russell, Dr. Russell, I'm I'm giving you your title so you know I'm not being disrespectful. This is African-American calling response, you know what I mean? Dr. Russell, now, I, I, woo, I'm i just troping on Steve Biko from the Black Consciousness Movement. This is what, before they murdered him, this is what Dr. Biko, right? You talk about you a medical. I mean, it sounds like that might be, a, there's another model, right? Steve Bantu Biko. Steve Biko in the court says, well, actually, you're not white and I'm not black. And see, it's the overinvestment in colors. See, I'm more interested in culture. If we start talking about culture, I could actually tell you I've traveled extensively, uh, obviously throughout Africa and even throughout Europe. And there's many things, even in Europe, that, uh, Emily, I actually thought, wow, this is a great contribution to human culture and civilization, right? If you let go of some of these things, what if we could suspend some of this? Now, even as I say that, African-Americans haven't had reparations. And I ain't talking about money necessarily. I'm talking about how do we repair, how does America repair its relationship to a people that were enslaved for 250 years in a so-called democratic society? Also, after the 250 years of enslavement, you get another 150 years of Jim and Jane Crow segregation, what we call American apartheid in critical race theory. 
And the fact that there's no national conversation surrounding this, the fact that we only just now and oh God, we only just now in 2021, we only just now achieve Juneteenth as a holiday. I mean, do you know how I wept? How psychologically, you know, it just, Courtney, I don't know about you, brother, but I, I seen the barbershop, man, would just tow up. People just, people just in there. I mean, the brother just locked the door and just cried, let it out, you know? I mean, it just, they don't understand what that might mean just to acknowledge that this happened in the United States. This happened here. It didn't happen somewhere else. Come on, talk to me now. Talk to me. So much is, is coming up for me. You asked a, a great question. How would reparations look? You said it. You almost answered the question. Acknowledgement. Well, it begins. Yes. That, that, that is lacking. Like nothing's going to happen until we stop denying. If you, start, if you started with acknowledgement... And that's what CRT is trying to undercut. And that's the battle that's being fought. It's not about what's in the school. It's like, it's so offensive. Changing the word slaves to workers. It's a huge disrespect to the struggle of slavery. That's a huge disrespect. Workers? The nomenclature. Now you're going to one of the core concepts of critical race theory is, listen, uh, they taught me Brother Rebecca, if you ask the wrong questions, you can't help but to get the wrong answers. So, again, we got a lot of different. And I think that we, with all this science and technology and communicative possibilities, so much confusion, so much dissension, so much misinformation. And we're going to really sort of need to hit some kind of reset button so that we can have an open and honest conversation about what does it mean to be human right here Right now, and what does it mean to acknowledge the humanity of folks who have suffered in the past? And how does that impact our conception of humanity or democracy or what it means to be American right now? And do we acknowledge that every group in this country has made special contributions to American democracy? If we can't have that conversation, I'm a, I'm really afraid. I'm, I mean, y'all gonna make me pessimistic in here. Well, it's almost like a soul recovery for white people too, right? Of like, we're trying to exist and pretend in this world that things didn't happen, that got us here. It's disturbing. It's dehumanizing. We don't, we're not existing in our full potential. And that's, the, the whole thing has to be reset. And the fear, like I hear so often from white people, so I do a lot of diversity training, of, I'm just so afraid. I'm so afraid of offending someone. That is miraculously, brilliantly what's holding it in place, right? Somehow the fear got put over there so that still we don't make any progress to treat each other like humans. Both of you guys spoke eloquently about nomenclature, words, language. What was the first thing that was done to slaves on the transatlantic passage and as they came here to America to take away their language? Because if they cannot communicate, if they can't articulate, if they can't say what they mean and organize, that's a way of oppression. That's a way of enslaving you without chains, without guns. Because if you look at a plantation with a hundred, with hundreds upon hundreds of slaves, with a family of four overseeing them, what was enslaving them was their mind, was their loss of language, was their loss of family, was their loss of culture. 
So you take all of that away, and I'm just uh, I'm, I'm a dead man walking out here. They call that cultural death, right? Orlando Patterson, Harvard University has a book called Slavery and Social Death. So to die culturally, to die socially, to die politically, to have no rights, his it's two two things. I'm gonna say it quickly. You remind me of Bob Marley. Bob Marley has a song uh, that says, "Emancipate yourself from mental slavery. Mental slavery. None but ourselves can free our minds." So. You know, again, they talk about you can take the chain off the body, but it can still be on the brain. This is what we mean by decolonizing the, the curriculum. So the kinds of classes that I'm offering at the University of Colorado at Boulder, from my civil rights movement class to my Harlem Renaissance class to my Black Lives Matter movement class and so on and so forth, constantly pushing the envelope to make sure that students who want to take you know, these kinds of courses have access to them. This is about equity. This is about access. Th that's one thing. Two, you know what, Dr. Russell? You know, in critical race theory, they actually have shifted to where they say enslaved, right? Enslaved, meaning that it's only a temporary, right? Because it wasn't permanent because we was able to be, we liberated ourselves, right? Harriet Tubman, Frederick Douglass. And so even the how we talk about our ancestors then becomes very, very important. So that acknowledgement that resistance isn't sometimes purely physical. You and I both know they would tear up the tools and say, oh, yeah, the, <laughs> this instrument uh, uh, for labor is, is malfunctioning, right? And so on and so forth, right? So all different kinds of ways. And you know, we know about Eshu and Legba, how African-Americans have all these stories concerning the trickster, how, how we will uh, make a sound in the East and hit them in the West and all these different kinds of things. And all of these are techniques that have been handed down to help us navigate some of these space. People call it code switching. There's so many different ways in which the culture, literally the culture has evolved. And I think that, again, let me be transparent. As a human scientist, if I was not African-American, I think I would still be in awe. I would marvel at this culture that started in bondage and somehow Less than 150 years later, the first non-white president happens to be Barack Obama. Y'all not hearing me. I mean, something. <laughs> I'm, I'm, and I'm going to take it back to something much more simple. I am amazed. Do you understand? Like, we, it was illegal to read. It was illegal to be a free person. If you looked at a person in a way of any kind of dignity, you were killed. Emmett Till. Emmett Till. For us to still be here smiling, having these conversations, talking about ways to push a culture that has been through so much genocide, not to take away from the other cultures that have went through genocide as well, but the meticulous planning that it took, i.e. white supremacy, to make sure that we were structurally systemically and perpetually in this line of work, since we're workers, I, I, I'm speechless. And I think I I don't, you know, to your point, Dr. Rebecca, of, of being in, in awe of this culture. So my background as an interculturalist is, you know, traveling around the world, going to different countries, trying to explore and absorb different ways of knowing, different ways of being in, in the world. And it as I've gone on to teach it, I, you know, it's, it often begins with curiosity. And in this, and when I go to Senegal, I don't feel threatened by the culture in Senegal because I've, 
I'm going to explore. And yeah, there's times where I'm uncomfortable. There's times where my limits are pushed, but I understand that as learning. And I'm laughing at myself because I don't know why this is. It it really took me through the process of being on Humanized with Courtney the last year and a half to fully grasp that Black and African-American culture is a distinct culture from my culture. Because I've been raised and coexisting, you know, forever. And as soon as I grasp the depth and the lineage of these cultural differences on, on every single definition of culture, I was like, oh, duh, approach with curiosity, knowing discomfort will be there. And it is completely changed. And I don't know, I'm very ashamed that it's taken me that long to understand that is what's going on. Can I say, I, I really don't think there's any need for shame. I'm glad that you get that, that you got here, that you've arrived at this particular point, because there are a lot of people who are sulking back in what we call uh, either cultural amnesia or cultural ignorance. So they're quite comfortable remaining oblivious to it. I mean, read Robin DiAngelo, white fragility, even before that, white guilt, white privilege. We have all of these terms that critical race theory scholars use. But if people would actually explore the depth of them and apply them, see what I'm studying, I'm literally applying it to my life. I want to practice lifelong learning, which is why I love the academy, which is why what I do is not a job. This is my mission. This is my vocation. This is my calling. And Emily, all I'm saying is that I don't know anybody else in my family who feels that way about their jobs. Like most people have dream destroying jobs. They just work that job to pay their bills. It's about the first and the 15th. That's it. So I feel like my ability as a jazz musician, you know, I started out as a youth minister of music. I'm a, I'm a PK. I'm, I'm a preacher's uh, kid. I'm, I'm a minister's son. So to start out much like James Baldwin as a youth minister, right? Again, youth minister of music. Gospel music is my first love. But again, I was allowed to play jazz. So jazz is what paid. The first $100 bill I've ever saw in my life, I was ever given in my life, I was nine years old, and I played a a jazz gig, right? And so that's how this kid in the projects could get, go to all of these elite white schools, arts-focused schools, and get a scholarship. Courtney, you're not hearing what I'm saying. Abroad from the project got like how many scholarships did, I, I don't know if I did not get into any of your schools that I applied to like two dozen school all right and so you end up swinging I literally swung my way out of the projects through undergrad got into undergrad the life of the jazz musician I did not want to spend the rest of my life hiding behind a set of drums and the books as I was on tour around the world I'm reading two or three books a week and people just like man you need to stop playing you're a professor you know, won't you go out there and, you know, and, and you should go back and, and study. And of course, I'm fascinated by the music that is coming, obviously jazz, but Caribbean music, um, a lot of music coming out of Latin America, certainly Africa. And there's all these different meters, all this different unique percussion that is coming through. And so I'm saying all this to segue back into, I should share with your listeners that the Center for African and African-American Studies We'll have three major program areas. Number one, research, because we're at a research one university and they pride themselves on that. And so do I. Uh, Research program. We will have an arts program. When I say arts, I mean performing and visual art. And so we will have we have a concert series. We have a performing art series. We're going to be working with the University of Colorado Museum to have art exhibits. 
And then lastly, we have a student services program. So special. So this is the space where I was very humiliated in undergrad. Uh, I did not, obviously, I was a scholarship kid and I didn't have money most time to get my books. And I would go to the professor and see if I could wash their car or mow their lawn to borrow the books and, you know, do whatever I had to do. I would, they would put the books on reserve in the library and I would go in there early in the morning and stay until midnight, shut it down because I couldn't afford the books. So in the cause, we have a, an emergency, a student emergency fund where for the last 16, 17 years, when the students have needed books, guess who they came to? Me. And I walked them to the CU library, or, or excuse me, to the bookstore, and I buy their books for them. I've been doing this. NAACP found out about it and said, you know what? You're going to mess up your mortgage if you keep on, young, young brother. So we're going to help you. So we have a dedicated fund to help students. Again, on the campus, what does it mean to be black on a predominantly white, at a predominantly white institution? Some people are getting called the N-word for the first time, right? Some people are experiencing microaggressions, which they don't even know what they are. Some people are experiencing racial trauma. We have specialists in the center, in our student services program. They're going to, I mean, are y'all hearing the practical dimension? So this isn't symbolic solidarity. I'm, I won't allow that. This is not a token center where it's not, this is not just a little feather in the university's cap. No, no, no. We're going to have, have actual programs and practical things to help students, staff, and faculty and the community. Check this out. Do you all know, I've been here 17 years. I have been contacted by more black alumnus of the University of Colorado Boulder attempting to create this center than I ever have. Some of them was like, I have never given one dime to the University of Colorado, but I will give to the center. So I'm just saying like, this is, these are some of the, like, Emily, do you understand? All I'm talking about is how do we repair our relationships? We've, we've, we've isolated it. You know, I'm a professor, so watch this. So part of it is we have to acknowledge each other, each, each other's humanity, right? We need to start there. You know, number two, we got to get some of the wrongs out on the table, things that where people feel like they have been wrong or they have been wrong, because that'll help us steer clear of resentment. Am I right or wrong? 100% right. Right. And then once you acknowledge this, is how we know that people have remorse and that they're not psychopaths or sociopaths. If you actually acknowledge remorse, then how can we repair our relationships with each other? And again, that that's more than throwing money at the problem. I just want to state that that is more than throwing money. That could be time. That could be energy. Emily, that could be having panels and conversation. I would love to have you and Courtney come to the center and us have a hmm, panel. Say less. I think it would be important to showcase you, if I can call y'all my uh, colleagues and perhaps my friends at this point, but co-workers in this struggle, I think, do you all realize how you all can provide a model for how do we have candid and critical conversation, civilly though, ain't nobody cussing nobody out, ain't nobody talking about nobody mama, they big mama, they, we don't got to do, like how can we have these conversations understanding though, too, Emily, did you see that when you were vulnerable and said, you know what, it's about waking up every day and doing this work and blah. And I also said, well, well, well wait now, Susan, you're not the only one doing the work. I got some work to do when it comes to gender, when it comes to sexism, when it comes to patriarchy. See, that's what I mean by radical honesty. See, if we're really honest, there's all of us have some work to do. Now I sound like a radical humanist. Yes, you're looking at a radical humanist. I'm somebody, 
I'm saying right now, Emily, I don't know your children, but if you left me in charge of your children and we was playing ball and the ball ran out in the street and another little kid across the street was running for the ball and here comes the car, I'm not going to say, well, what color are they before I think about saving them? Th that's not the way my mind works. People have to teach children the construct of race. My mother said when I was a child, I played with anybody, anywhere, anytime. They have to train you to see yourself as white or black or brown or yellow or red or all these other little colors and stuff like that. What if I'm trying to get to something? Oh, gosh. My philosophy transcends. It transgresses the social constructions of race, gender, class, sexuality, religiosity. Yes, because religion has also been used in very divisive ways to tear people apart and not bring them together. I'm talking about what, what is it that we can do to actually create unity and community? And that is what the Center for African and African American Studies is all about. I feel like I just did a PSA. I hope y'all cut <laughs> no, this part out. <laughs> Ooh, ooh, I, feel so good. <laughs> I love this. I mean, I'm going to have to do oh. like a real like cool down walk after this episode. It's just so fun and high energy. Um, it's amazing. Yeah, this is. Yeah. Listen, hey, be encouraged, brother. We don't say that enough to each other. You know how brothers be running around here trying to play strong. And so if I can also say that one of the things that I do in my hip hop class, I, I want to interrogate hip hop hyper masculinity. Uh, and so I'm really, really big on this. So in my hip hop class, the reason it's had such longevity, I've been teaching hip hop for a long, long time. And I created the first hip hop class, University of Colorado at Boulder. And the reason it has such longevity is not only do we interrogate hyper masculinity, I do hip hop feminism. Right. Yeah, that's the thing. I, in fact, I wrote a book uh, over 10 years ago. Uh, I wrote a uh, a, a book uh, called Hip Hop's uh, Inheritance, where I actually explore the hip hop uh, feminist movement, that they're not your grandmother and your mother's kinds of feminists. They are, you know, these are some young girls and, and young women, uh, really, really who have a relationship to popular culture, and they're using popular culture to raise feminist consciousness, womanist consciousness, so on and so forth. And it's a very, very, obviously, it's something that's very, I think, intriguing. On top of that, so I said hip-hop hyper-masculinity, hip-hop feminism. Yo, we do hip-hop queer and trans studies. Some of y'all would be blown away by the hip-hop queer community is off. And it's not, again, this isn't the gangster rapper constantly grabbing his groceries with the hyper-testosterone. These are some people who are using hip-hop in some very different ways. Like right now, I blast with my students mixtapes where they talk about all of the uh, trans folks who are murdered. They don't make the nightly news, but they got raps about them, right? This is some really, so hip hop really is sort of raising consciousness and spreading other kinds of messages. Hip hop and disability studies, like there's so many different ways that I'm really just trying to decolonize the curriculum, push the envelope, make sure it's intersectional in a real way, not a buzzword, because in Boulder they'll say intersectional, but they're really talking about mo mostly uh, sometimes gender and sexuality, and they won't talk about race and class. Class is another thing at the University of Colorado Boulder we're going to have to get with. Everybody's not from the suburbs. We got a lot of people from the barrio, a lot of people from the trailer parks, a lot of people from the ghettos, the slums. Come on, like people much like myself. And that's why they run it off in there. Ooh, if y'all see, they take over by office hours. They're going to bump that. They, I'm just, I mean, it'd be like, I mean, like 30 students in my office, right? So for me, this is not a job, this is a vocation. This is a mission. And I also want to tell y'all that I want to be like an oasis. 
in, in this in this desert that I, I want to make sure that people understand that a lot of non-white people have a qualitatively different experience in Boulder, Colorado. Right. So, again, like with whiteness, this could be the greatest place on the face of the earth. But, you know, again, you're talking to a vegan. So just going to Whole Foods, people are double taking. And don't let me go off in there with my African beret on. Oh, they might think that. Oh, uh, Courtney, I don't know. I'm just saying the, the security guard would check in with me three oh, or four times. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, just to, just, just to see if I'm all right. Just, bro. just yeah, I just I was. I was just wondering if I could help you find anything so we can hurry up yeah, and get you yeah. out of here and make people uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I need, to, I need to pull up I, on I don't you. even go to banks anymore. And I don't try to go to banks. I, I don't go to banks Man, at all. I, I need to pull up on you in Boulder, man. We, we, this we, is Boulder. Listen, Courtney, I'm not talking about Mississippi. I'm talking about Boulder, Colorado, the place that they call the hippie heaven of Colorado. What I have experienced in terms of racial trauma, in terms of microaggressions, but then at the same time, Hear me, I'm gonna slow it down. But I've also met some of the most beautiful and committed folks who are anti-racist or they're evolving anti-racist. They realize that you gotta start somewhere. And if I can help them, I'm not gonna do the work for them. But right now, when they come to my CRT class and they realize, wait, we're gonna devote a whole month to critical white studies. And again, sister, a sister broke down, this is a, a white sister broke down just like, I, I, I don't know if you understand what this means that you would take, I said, listen, it's not just non-white people that are race. I'm also trying to teach you that you are race. Now they done fooled you. They done practiced some trickeration on your forehead to make you think that you somehow, that everybody else is race. Listen, what we're talking about, and this is what we get from Du Bois is the souls of white folk. Du Bois comes with a couple of concepts. Number one, white racelessness. Number two, white racial neutrality. Number three, white racial universality. And Du Bois demystifies all of those. And he did this, Emily, in 1910, over 100 years. The guy was a prophet and a genius. He wasn't perfect. He wasn't perfect. But I'm saying right now, the oldest civil rights organization in the history of this nation was founded, at least co-founded, by William Edward Burghardt Du Bois in 1909, there, would, there probably would not have been a Harlem Renaissance or the Harlem Renaissance would have looked very different without the Crisis Magazine, which he started in 1911, which helped to really prefigure the art and the culture of the Harlem Renaissance. I mean, if you really sort of think about it, wait, the first person to ever publish Langston Nathaniel Hughes, the Crisis Magazine, W.B. Du Bois, Langston Hughes was 16 year old high school student, published his first poem, Du Bois. I, I'm just, I mean, I could do this all day, but we don't have all day. I know. We do need, we do need to wrap up. We've, uh, you've, you've given, you've been so generous with your time and so generous with your, your heart and your intellect. I mean, wow. It's amazing. I'm just, yeah. Just feel it's really a blessing. honored to no, seriously, it's, it's connect a blessing. with you. So thank you so much. It is, it is reciprocal. It is reciprocal. I want to share this with you all. I don't get a chance. This is why. The Center for African African American Studies, the cause means so much to me. It's because I, Brother Courtney, you're probably well aware of this, but in some of these barbershops and these beauty shops and some of these mosques and, and churches and synagogues, it's people having some high quality conversation that the rest of the nation is not privy to. Emily, what I want to do is I want to show this is a, a core concept of the culture. Now, might we talk about politics and Uncle Joe Biden? 
in very different ways than the rest of them. Oh, yes, we, we might. But that's the culture, though. Wait, uh, Brother Court, do I use call and response in the classroom? And some of, and some of, the, and some of the students, that they've never experienced it. I'm telling you, it was a young white lady. In the class, I was, you know, I was blazing, coming back, and I was telling the students, and the students had to respond, and boom, boom, boom. She actually got happy. They had to fan her. They had to fan her. I gave her a bottle of water. She said, I don't know what's happening. I said, that's okay. You got the spirit. You got the spirit. That's all that is. You done got the spirit. You got the spirit. You got touch. See, there's something inside of you. And I said, see what you're experiencing right now. That's what I mean when I say we connect on a soul level. See, right now, oh, y'all don't hear me. Right now, one of my favorite artists, his name is Richie Havens. He's an he's a African-American folk artist. And Richie Havens has a song. It's called Younger Men Get Older Every Day. So this little body of mine, <laughs> I have a small man complex. Both of my brothers are handsome and tall. I feel like Prince. You know, I have a small man complex. You know what I mean? I got a small man complex. Anyway, this little body this little body is decaying every day. And what I'm trying to do is give myself soul food. So even more than feeding my intellect by reading all of these books, I want to make sure that I'm engaging on a spiritual level, on the level of the soul and the heart. And I can't tell you something happens in the classroom with my students, many who are agnostic, many who are atheists, many who Again, much like myself, may not want anything to do with organized religion or mass religion, but something sacred and powerful happens in, the, in those spaces. I want to sort of build that out in the cause where we can have open houses, right, monthly and invite the community where brilliant folks like yourself doing incredible work, transformative, progressive work. I'm telling you to your faces that y'all are doing important work, that having had this conversation with you all, I do not feel as alone in Boulder, Colorado. I would like to invite you all to, gosh, I would, <clears throat> I would like to humbly, if you all would have me, I would like to invite you all to be members of the community for the Center for African and African American Studies. And I've already said it before, I believe that you all are a model for the kind of community that I would like to build. Uh, in the brand new center. And I want to shout you out, especially, watch this brother coordinate, Dr. Russell. And I want to spout you out, shout you out, especially Sister Emily, because you almost, when it, I, t I say this to my white students, it's almost like a white anti-racist has a double duty or a triple duty. Because some people's like, well, why would you do that? You know, why, why, why would you think deeply and critically about your whiteness? You're just gonna depress yourself. You're just gonna make yourself. <laughs> you're just gonna make yourself sad and mad and blah 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 blah. And just come on and be oblivious. And so again, at the same time, I realize that a lot of my uh, white colleagues, my white friends, my white allies, some of them actually get ostracized by their own family, and they don't feel a sense of community. They feel it's different than the alienation I feel. But they, too, feel isolated. They, too, feel alienated. What if this conception of a beloved community in Boulder is predicated on a real radical inclusivity that if people... Listen, I'm going to tell y'all, like, this is a ragtag cast of characters that I'm assembling out here. And it's intersectional. Radical inclusivity is always already... It has nothing to do with people's race, their gender, their class, their sexuality, their religious affiliation. And it doesn't have the nation of origin. It has nothing to do with that, right? And if you look at Africa, the continent, 
there's been a lot of folks going in and out of Africa for millennia. It's been, I mean, the ancient Egyptians were multicultural, multiracial before people even had a concept of multicultural, multiracial. So if you think about the models that I'm building on and the vision that we have, I want to make sure that the kind of alienation, the kind of isolation, the kind of trauma that I experienced, I'm just trying to build a center and build a community and build a world where people don't experience that. And I think that that's radical humanism is, is really, it's making sure to get in touch, to acknowledge, to celebrate, to honor the humanity of people. Obviously folks who've been dehumanized first and foremost, but it's also those other folks who are making significant contributions to this project of how do we rehumanize the folks that they attempted to dehumanize. Those people that are actually concretely contributing to rehumanization, they family. They're, they may not be family in the biological sense, but in the African-American extended family concept, they are part of my radical political family. They are part of, they are part of the transformative family that I seek to create. Oh boy. How y'all feel? <laughs> I know we, I know we got to wrap up, Emily, but I'm gonna be honest. Like this is a masterclass, man. You know, Oh, oh, you know, oh, you know what? Oh, you know what? I'm gonna take that as a high compliment. As you you should, as you should. You just humbled me. You just humbled me. I'm serious though. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, you know what? I'm gonna go ahead and bust my right. I'm an SP soldier, microphone holder. I'm repping my set from Bolivia to Boulder. (laughs) Huh? You can't hear me. You can't hear me. That's Black Thought of the Roots, by the way. That's the Roots crew, legendary Roots crew, my favorite Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, doing it all day. Listen, I appreciate you. This has been a beautiful conversation. Uh, Perhaps this is the first of many. I would love for you all to come back once the center is actually up and running. And if with y'all's permission, I would love for y'all to let me bring some of my students on with me, some of the student founders. I'm serious though. Um, these are some brilliant folk. I hope y'all see. For me, it's always about showcasing uh, my grandmother, who's 94 years old, whom I love, uh, the great love of my life, who sent me to school and sacrificed so much so that I could be here with you all today. My, my grandmother, the member of what's called the Black Women's Club Movement, it started out as the National Council of Negro Women. And it is this organization that took in a 16-year-old W.B. Du Bois when his mother died. And this is why uh, the organization is called the National Association uh, for the Advancement of Colored People. He modeled it off of the sisters who took him in when he was orphaned. You know, his father was not around. And so the National Association of Colored Women, and then that evolved into the National Council of Negro Women, headed up by Mary McLeod Bethune. And so my grandmother, this organization, the motto of the organization is lifting as we climb. Lifting as we climb. So. If I get up, I want my whole squad. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just keep pulling them up with me. I say it all the time to my students. I want them to be better than me. I want them to go further than me. I want them to do more than I ever could. And I want to create opportunities for them. That is what this center is about. And I feel like y'all's podcast, y'all, y'all going to open up some hearts and some minds. I want y'all to be encouraged to keep doing what you're doing. But I would like to circle back and maybe we can make this an annual or a biannual or something like that. Check in. Check in with, you know, check in with y'all special counsel. Check in with y'all, wait, y'all's minister of education. <laughs> ho! Ho! Yes. Huh? Yes. 
And I cannot <laughs> wait till hopefully next time we'll be in person sitting down um, doing this because if it was this good on Zoom. Imagine fireworks. Right. I feel like I feel like Katy Perry. Ba <laughs> Baby, you're a firework. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Though. And you know what? It's organic. This is one of the things for me that I have learned so much from working in BLM and that this is not an academic exercise for me. They taught me how to practice self-care. They taught me how uh, uh, more about work life balance. They taught me about I have learned so much from community activists. I mean, talk about a master class, Dr. Russell. I mean, when I go to the community and I humble myself and I, I learn so much, I say the same thing. My students are my teachers, period. My students are my teachers. How do y'all think I stay up with all the hottest hip hop? They constantly put me, they take over my office out. You need to listen to that new, you know, we got the new new. And, you know, I said, okay, for real. You know, and so for me, I, this whole Dr. Rebecca title, is just a reminder to practice lifelong learning. You know, that I'm, I'm here to heal people's heads and their hearts, right? The body, I'm going to leave that to somebody else, right? The body part, okay, I don't know very much about all that. I need to take care of my own. But I'm here to sort of to raise consciousness, to be transformative. And at the same time, I also believe that education can be entertaining. Y'all can't hear me. KRS-One, Edutainment, my favorite album by KRS-One, 1990, is called Edutainment. Listen, Bell Hooks, one of my idols, one of my intellectual idols, Bell Hooks, Peace be upon her. In her book called Teaching to Transgress, Bell Hook said education should be exciting. She says that you cannot come to her class and a student has never fell asleep when no, I, I can't the lecture. Because I'm going to set it on fire. I'm going to set it on fire. I'm going to set it on fire. Love it. Love it. Oh, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Really, really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Humanize. Please remember to like and subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Join us on Instagram or Facebook to continue this conversation at The Humanize Podcast. Let us know if you want to learn more about the professional trainings we offer. And of course, tune in next time as we continue the work. Thank you and much love.